Psalm 110 tonight on our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. We try to cover a little bit of territory on Sunday nights, and it really helps to be able to hear the Word of God, but to read it as well and keeping track of things. And so... Uh, get a Bible, and then please, if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that Bible home as a gift from the Lord tonight. And coming to Psalm 110, it is the most frequently quoted psalm in the entire New Testament, and it's the most frequently quoted for the very simple reason that it is probably uh, one of the most, if not the most, messianic psalms in all of the Bible, and uh, uh, in speaking of Jesus as the promised Christ, as the promised Messiah, as the promised Savior of the world. And this psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus was born, and in the psalm written by King David, he prophesies concerning the Messiah that he will be four things when he comes on the scene. Number one, he will be divine. Number two, he will be a king. Number three, He will be a priest, and number four, he will be a judge. And so that's what the psalm is all about in order that, as David writes this, that when the Messiah would come on the scene in human history, as Jesus did a thousand years later, that nobody would miss him as the promised Messiah based upon the Scriptures, Old Testament Scriptures, describing him ahead of time And yet, amazingly, the Jewish religious leaders, by and large, did not recognize him as the Messiah. Um, And it took a a deliberate turning away from the prophetic picture, uh, speaking of the Messiah, in order to come to that conclusion. But they weren't honest related to Jesus. But a beautiful psalm that for us simply reaffirms our faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. He begins in verse 1 and says, The Lord, that is Yahweh or Jehovah, when you see the word Lord uh, in the Bible and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a name for the Father, Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, kind of written in a couple different ways. The Lord, David said, said to my Lord, and the word for Lord there is Adonai, sit at my right hand. And so in this uh, uh, opening half of verse 1, we notice that David calls the Messiah Lord. And for David to call someone Lord reveals that whoever this person is that he's referring to is someone who is greater than David in terms of position and in terms of authority. And given the fact of David's a position and authority in terms of the history of the Jewish people. He was the greatest king that Israel ever had. Uh, He was the king that set the standard by which all other kings would be judged. So for David to call someone Lord is uh, saying a lot, and, and it shows us that the verse can only refer to the Messiah. We notice further that David then declares that the Father uh, speaks to this Lord and invites him to sit 
at his right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, that doesn't mean anything to us in this culture for the most part. But in the ancient world, the place at the right hand of the king was always reserved for his son. And so here you have God the Father inviting the Messiah to sit at his right hand. In other words, the Father is declaring the Messiah to be his son, and to be his son is to be divine. And so to sit at the right hand of God the Father is an exaltation that is something that David would never ascribe to a mere man and would never ascribe uh, even to an angelic being. When we turn to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, and the writer of the book of Hebrews speaking of the superiority of Jesus as the Messiah, the superiority of Jesus to angels, wrote, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sin, speaking of Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. The right hand of God, the seat at the right hand of God, couldn't even be filled by an angel, let alone a mere man. had to be the son whoever, of whoever filled the throne, the son of God. And Jesus, um, speaking, I think, obviously very unapologetically to the religious leaders who were examining him on the morning of his crucifixion, the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, speaking of the Father. And he is ascribing this psalm to himself as the very Son of God who is going to return to the heaven that he came from in order to come into this world to sit at that right uh, hand of God because he alone is the Son of God. And Mark's gospel straightly declares in Mark chapter 16 concerning Jesus' ascension. And so then after the Lord had spoken to the disciples, he, that is Jesus, was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now all of this created tremendous confusion for the Jewish religious scholars of Jesus' day and it creates a great uh, puzzle and difficulty for Jewish Uh, religious scholars today who are unwilling to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Because here you have King David, the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. Again, the standard by which all other kings uh, would be judged. And he is calling the Messiah Lord. And so if David, the greatest of all human kings, calls the Messiah Lord or Master, then the, the Messiah has to be more than a mere man. And so the obvious explanation is that Messiah would be both human 
and that he would be divine. But that was an explanation that the Jewish religious leaders weren't willing to accept. And so they kind of buried this verse in any of their discussions concerning the coming of the future Messiah. Even today, it's interesting. Um, I have a Jewish study Bible is, uh, is a part of my library. And I like to look at what uh, the Hebrew scholars uh, say related to their scriptures. Obviously, there's not a New Testament in it. It's a, uh, completely an Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. But it's fascinating to read uh, what that Jewish study Bible declares concerning uh, this first half of verse 1 in Psalm 110 that speaks so clearly uh, to Jesus as the Messiah. And uh, what is written as uh, a note in that Bible is that it's a royal psalm, and they, they write, in the Christian interpretation, it is understood as a reference to Jesus as a messianic and sometimes eschatological or last times, end times psalm. Radek uh, polemicizes against this view concerning verse 1. He declares that here God is speaking uh, to the king called my Lord, which is just absolute nonsense. Uh, and you think about how desperate to twist the meaning of, of the passage to have God calling David Lord or David having God refer to him as Lord in the writing of the psalm as others did in the king. But like, God, don't speak to me as David. I want you to acknowledge my position as king and I want you to call me Lord. Well, that's just uh, silliness. Now, Jesus forced the Jewish religious leaders to take note of this verse in giving them a biblical basis for his claim to be divine, to be uh, the Son of God, but also God the Son. And uh, we're told in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, that when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. They had been trying to trap him with questions. The Sadducees had been trying to trap him with questions. There was a man who had a wife and he died and then the seven, six brothers married and who in the resurrection is going to have his wife and all of this and how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And, and so Jesus, he got done with the discussions and finally they were done trying to publicly trap him and humiliate him in front of people. It's very hard to uh, trap God. Uh, the Bible says he knows our thoughts when they're far off. He knows our thoughts when we're going to th before we think them. That's a tremendous advantage in any discussion or debate. And so he just readily dealt with their issues, and then they weren't going to say anything else. And so Jesus said, all right, I have a question for you. And he asked the Pharisees, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He's just going to be a physical descendant of David, nothing more, just a man, not the son of God, not divine. And so Jesus said to them, and he quotes Psalm 110, How then does David, in the Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, call him, that is Messiah, Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus said, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son or merely his son? And then the religious leaders, no one was able to answer Jesus a word, nor from that day did anyone dare uh, question him anymore. And the question that Jesus posed was a very, very simple one. 
If Messiah is merely David's son, merely David's descendant, then how do you explain David calling him Lord? What father would call their son Lord? And, and so they had no uh, answer, not because there wasn't an answer, but because they didn't answer because they didn't like the answer that they would have to give if they were honest with the Scriptures. And the honest answer would have been that Psalm 110 clearly declares that Messiah would be both David's son and David's Lord. And so it teaches both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus, that he is all God, all man, uh, was all God, all man, all at the same time. And that the Messiah would not only be of the lineage of David physically, but would be also be greater than David, more than a mere man or even a great man. He's going to be divine just as Jesus was. John put it this way in his uh, gospel. He said, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And then a little later in John 1, And the Word, that is, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the prophecy, the promise that when the Messiah came into the world, he would make the claim to be divine because he actually was and is the very Son of God. Now what can God do to prepare the Jews or to prepare a Gentile for the fact that the Messiah would come into the world, that Jesus would come into the world and claim to be divine, God the Son, because he is What more can he do than to tell us a thousand years before it happens so that when it happens, we will recognize Jesus for the Messiah that he claims to be? There's so many people that will, and most Jewish people, but not just Jewish, only Jewish people, will reject Jesus on the basis of his claim to be divine. But if Jesus wanted to accommodate them and shows up on the scene in human history and denies the fact that he is divine or is less than divine, then he doesn't match the prophetic scripture of the Messiah, and thus he can't be the Messiah. So life is easy for Jesus. He just has to be who and what he is. But people have to accept that. And so far from the fact that he claimed to be the Son of God being a reason for unbelief in him, as the Messiah and the Savior of the world, it is a cause for belief. But man, you've got to be open. You have to be open to accepting that and accepting God's definition of his Messiah on the basis of the word uh, of God. And so my, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. And so here is David prophesying that the Messiah is going to also be a king, not only the Son of God, but that he is going to be a king, that the Father is going to make the Messiah's enemies to be his footstool. A footstool is a place where a person would put their... Uh, feet And in the ancient 
world it was a common practice when you defeated an enemy that you would put your foot on their neck. I mean, it was just an obvious symbol of who had won uh, the battle. And so it's, this is the psalmist's way of declaring, and David was a man of war. He understood it, that all of the enemies of the coming Messiah, all the enemies of the Son, uh, are going to be uh, doomed. And so they are at Jesus' second coming. Notice that the Messiah uh, in verse 2 will rule from Zion, from Jerusalem. He's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. Jesus will do that in his thousand-year reign following his second coming. And uh, Psalm 2 brings all of this out. Yet I have set my king, the scripture says, on my holy hill of Zion, and I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. And so Jesus is going to rule in a perfect righteousness during that thousand-year reign. I'm not going to need any military force. You're not going to require any law enforcement, none of that. No, there's just going to be no nonsense. There aren't going to be any gangs. There aren't going to be any drug cartels. There isn't going to be any human trafficking. There isn't going to be any stealing or lying or none of that stuff. He's just going to rule, absolutely rule, in a perfect righteousness. And uh, I say, hip, hip, uh, hooray. And, of course, the righteous love that. Other people think, what? If, well, he's going to do what? Well, that will dry up, you know, this and that. And oh, how, how fun could that be? Oh, it will be great. <laughs> it will be great. But only the righteous can appreciate that. When, they hit, when we read about that in the Scriptures, oh, yes, Lord, bring it on. And I, vo I volunteer to be a part of that kingdom and a part of that reign with you. And that's why he speaks about volunteers here. And then he goes on to speak about the fact that the Messiah will be a priest. I think I've already lost maybe some of you. I can't see your eyes, so I don't take it personally. Um, but it's a, it, it's a deep uh, psalm, it's a, it, but it's, it's worthy of, of proper attention. And in verse 4 now, he brings out the fact that the Messiah will also be a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are, speaking of the Messiah, a priest forever. All the other priests that came and went, they died. And then they were replaced by the next generation. But you are, speaking of the Messiah, a priest forever. So it's going to be a priesthood of one according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he declared that the Messiah would be a king and a priest. And by virtue, this psalm was very, very confusing, again, for the Jewish uh, theologians. Because here you have the psalmist declaring that Messiah, that uh, is going to be both a king and a priest. The problem with that is that the kingly tribe was Judah. Uh, David was uh, a, a member of the tribe of Judah, and God had declared that the Messiah, when he comes into the world as king, he will be born of the lineage of David. He will be born into the world through the bloodline of Judah. But then everybody recognized that the priestly tribe is the tribe of Levi. So how in the world can the Messiah be born into the world and be from both two different tribes? 
and they didn't know how to make heads or tail, uh, tails of it. So if he's born into the world of the tribe of Levi, he can't be the Messiah based on the fact that that disqualifies him as being a king. But if he's born of the tribe of Judah, then he can't be a priest. And it just absolutely left them stumped. It seemed to be a contradiction in the Scriptures to them. And so what, how they chose to deal with it was to just simply ignore or at least minimize those passages that speak in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah as being a priest, and they chose then to emphasize the kingly aspect of the coming Messiah, that he would come from the tribe of Judah. And so that was their, their solution, was to ignore this passage that declared that Messiah would be a priest, and instead they emphasized the fact that Messiah would be a king born of the tribe of Judah. And so this whole this person, Melchizedek, is only mentioned three times in the Bible, once in Genesis, once here in Psalm 110, and then once again in the book of Hebrews. So because it confused the uh, Jewish theologians and they didn't know how to put this thing together, they, they just took this particular verse, verse 4, and they just tucked it off into a corner. And it gathered dust for a thousand years from the time of David until the time of Jesus and shortly after the writing of the book of Hebrews. The beautiful thing is the writer of the book of Hebrews goes over and there's this dusty prophecy sitting in the corner. And as in the book of Hebrews, as we're studying on Sunday morning, he's bringing out the fact that Jesus is better than anybody and everything in the whole wide world. He blows the dust off of this particular prophecy and then he puts it back into uh, circulation concerning the Messiah. And he reminded the world that Messiah would be not be a priest after the order of Aaron or the tribe of Levi, but that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that just as Melchizedek had in the book of Genesis the double role of priest and king at Jerusalem, Genesis chapter 14, and he had those dual roles, they were united in him as a type or a picture in just one place, Jerusalem, in just kind of one blink in human history, so too, the writer of Hebrews tells us, that the offices of king and priest would be united forever and over all humanity in the Messiah and in Jesus. And through David, God declared to the entire world, a thousand years before Jesus was born, that he was going to establish another priesthood for the Messiah. That he would not be a priest after the order of Aaron, but that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that, and that because he would be he would establish another priesthood for the Messiah without all of the limitations of the former priesthood and that God would produce, establish a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek that would forever and ever and ever only have a membership of one. Now, on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, as he was being examined by a council of religious leaders that included Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus was accused of blasphemy for simply declaring the truth concerning himself. 
And Caiaphas, the high priest, responded to what he considered to be blasphemy, and he tore his clothes, or he tore his robe. And as he tore his robe, the symbolism and the significance was completely lost upon him, but it wasn't lost on Jesus, and it wasn't lost on heaven. Uh, Not to the two lords, the uh, Yahweh and the Adonai of of Psalm uh, 110, and, and what he didn't realize is that on that day, more than his robe was being torn, that on that day of Jesus' death upon the cross, the whole Levitical priesthood would be torn in half to make way for a new priesthood. And just a few hours later, when Jesus died on that cross, the Father himself, the Lord of Psalm 110 verse 1, the one who swore and will not relent a thousand years earlier, he said that he would make Messiah both king and priest. He reached down into that temple and he tore the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place from the top to the bottom. And at that moment, Judaism, as it had been known, ceased to be. The Levitical priesthood was and is over. It is through. It has nothing to offer mankind at all because now there is one priest that is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who has provided us with an unparalleled and incomparable access to God and intimacy with God just as the Father desires. And one of the amazing things, and I think it's fabulous, about verse 4 is that there's no way that verse 4 of Psalm 110 can be understood or applied to any other individual person in history other than Jesus Christ himself. It is the only, only his life Uh, matches the description of Messiah that's given in Psalm 110. And then he describes the fact that the Messiah will also be uh, the judge, that he's going to judge the wicked, and the Lord is at your right hand, and he shall execute kings in the days of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations, and he shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries, and he shall drink of the brook by the wayside, and therefore he shall lift up uh, the head. And so here is this uh, speaking of the fact that uh, Jesus' judgment, when he comes into the world once again, it will be as a, a judge at his second coming and that no king, no collection of kings, no nations are going to be able to stand against him uh, in that day. And so the, the importance of realizing that each and every one of us in this room tonight, everyone in this room, everyone in this world, everyone in human history is going to stand before Jesus one day. That's all. That's, that's an appointment in everybody's future. The only variable is when I stand before him, will, I, will he be before me as my savior or will he be before me as my judge? And those are the only two choices. And I make that choice in this life on the basis of what I do or don't do 
with him and with the salvation that he has provided with me. I will face him one day, but I will see him and know him as my Savior. The Bible says that God isn't willing that any should perish. If you're not a Christian tonight and you haven't put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that because you don't want to face him uh, as a, a judge because then anyone that is put in that particular place, you'll be in that place because it's a choice that you have made. Everyone chooses. Uh, Jesus wants to be everyone's Savior, but he won't force himself upon uh, everyone. It tells us in Philippians, uh, upon anyone, Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everyone, everyone will articulate. It will come out of every person's mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is exactly who he said he was. But for some, it will be a confession under salvation because we believed in him in this life. For others that reject him all of this life, it will be a confession under damnation. And so this beautiful psalm that is given here, prophecy concerning the Messiah and uh, fulfilled, much of it is fulfilled, the side of Jesus coming as judge yet to be fulfilled and all of it pointing to only one person and all of history, and that is Jesus himself. Psalm 111 is a psalm of praise uh, for the wonderful works of the Lord. Now, you, we read through the psalm, and we're going to read about some of his wonderful works, and we're going to be in praise for that. But it's nice to realize that as a Christian, our lives are a part of the work of God. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we are his workmanship, and the word workmanship there, it's the word poema. It means a work of art. So God's at work in our lives. Do you, you recognize that? We all recognize that God's at work in our lives, huh? Not just in our neighbor and our wife or our husband or something. He's in work in our lives. What a potter he is. I think, I think one of the saddest things that can happen in a Christian's life is they stop growing as a Christian. And you run into them a year later, ten years later, and they're exactly where they were when you met them a year or ten years earlier. God is, is so desirous of working in our lives that we're unrecognizable week by week. And it may nothing be about our outward appearance, but just how we see things, how we process, how much Christ-likeness there is in us. And and God is wanting to work in that kind of a way in order to make us into a work of art. What is a work of art? A work of art is the is, is when when an artist takes and presents a work of art, that's an expression of something inside the heart of the artist. That's what God's doing in our lives. He's making our lives into this beautiful thing that everybody knows we can't make our life into that. And then when they look at it and say, look at the beautiful thing that God is making out of their life, then it brings glory to God and our lives are a reflection of the heart of God, what he wants to do in every life if he's given an opportunity. 
So, yes, God has done a lot of work through history, a lot of great things in the history of his people. Wonderful to realize that we are his workmanship as well. Praise the Lord, he says. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. And that's the only way to praise him. That's what he's worthy of. A whole heart worship. And in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. He says, I'm going to praise the Lord with my whole heart. And and I'm going to praise him out loud in the church service where God's people are uh, assembling together. And then the works that the Lord has done that, that he uh, begins to describe. The works of the Lord are great and studied by all who have pleasure in them. I like that. Studied by all who have pleasure in them. It's great to take any of God's miracles. He's going to list the Passover here in a moment. The feeding of the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years with the manna, bringing them into the land of Canaan and the conquest. And to take these different passages of Scripture and say, God did an incredible miracle here and that thing, and I'm going to study that miracle and see what it tells me about my God because my God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He can do the same thing in my life. The works of the Lord are great and studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures forever. And he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. And so here he starts to give examples of the greatness of the work that God has done in the history of Israel. In verse 4, when it speaks about a remembrance, this is generally thought to refer to the Passover, which was a feast that God gave to the children of Israel as a remembrance of his deliverance of them from the bondage of Egypt. And so here is the, when the, the um, psalmist is thinking about God and his great works, uh, to the Jewish mind, the greatest thing that God ever did was to deliver the children of Israel, the greatest miracle from the bondage of Egypt. Imagine being slaves or being in that nation of Israel for 400 years, being slaves to the most powerful nation in the world for some latter part of those years, and then God taking and delivering them out of there. What a display of his power. But it's a picture. It's a type. God's deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt is an Old Testament picture or type of his redeeming us out of the greater bondage than Egypt, delivering us from the bondage of sin and from darkness. I don't have any idea what kind of power was required to pull me out of sin and out of the kingdom of darkness and to bring me into the kingdom of light. I just know it happened, and I know that it happened, but I have no idea what kind of power was required to do that and is required to do that in the saving of a human soul. But it required a greater power of God to provide man with that kind of redemption from from the bondage of sin than ever it required of him in delivering three million people from the bondage of Egypt. I praise the Lord for his salvation and his ability to redeem and to deliver. 
And as he's thinking about God's great work and his power, he moves on to the, in verse 5, the children of Israel uh, making their way from uh, the land of Egypt to the promised land and God feeding them the manna during those years. And he has given food to those who fear him and he will ever be mindful of his covenant. You remember, now they got, they were bad and naughty. Unbelief put them in a wilderness for 40 years. That's what unbelief does. Keeps us from entering into the promised land and fully exploring the whole life that Christ has purchased for us. You think about all those 40 years, God sent that manna day after day after day after day. What a wonderful miracle. What a wonderful miracle. You say, what could top that? The bread of life, Christ. When you and I pick up our Bible in the morning and we begin to read it, and he gives life to this word and it speaks to our spirit, that is a greater miracle than the showering down of that manna for 40 years for the children of Israel. God taking his word and giving it life and speaking to us from it, this food for our spirit. And verse 6, he has declared to his people the power of his works and giving them the heritage of the nation. So there's the celebration of God bringing the children of Israel into the promised land and the conquest of the promised land. And the works of his hands are verity and justice. All of God's precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. And so here is uh, in, in, uh, in all of God's works and his wisdom, they are marked by trueness, by justice, by fairness, by faithfulness, by truth, by uprightness, by never changing, by being eternal. Wow. And he has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good, under, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. And so here's this wisdom of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Where does, how, what is the single great thing I can do to become wise in this world? Go to um, America's public schools or private schools or England's public schools or private schools or anywhere you want to aim. Now, the single greatest thing that we can do to become wise is to have a fear of God. 
And you can look at your life and you say, man, look at me. I was raised over here and I was on the wrong side of the track and we lived in a trailer and I never had access to this and I never even knew what I lost out on until I became an adult and now it's too late and how can I ever get the education and the background and the hope and all this kind of stuff that's going to give me a chance at being wise and successful in this world. No, wisdom is accessible to every single person in this world and it begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins by stopping and remembering the two great rules of the universe, truths of the universe. There is a God and I'm not Him. And so I look at God and I come to God with great reverence and great respect for who He is and what He does. And a person who has truly done that will always have one great mark in their life. They will obey the Word of God. A person who does not obey the Word of God does not have the fear of God. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about living generally obedient to the Word of God. But a person who looks and says, I'm going to settle the issue. He is God. I am not God. He knows what he's talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. He has given me his wisdom. I am going to now obey his, his word as he's revealed it into the, in the scriptures. And then a dummy like me can come off as wise in this world. And I can live a wise life. And it's accessible to us. And it comes with the fear of uh, of the Lord and then obeying his word. And then you watch as we obey his word, the quality of the person that is produced. As Jesus said, it's one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said. He said, wisdom is justified by her children. There's all kinds of claims for wisdom out there in the world. This is wisdom. That is wisdom. I'm wise. You're wise. They're wise. All of this kind of thing. And Jesus said, listen, Wisdom isn't to be called wisdom simply because it declares itself to be wisdom. You determine true wisdom by the quality of the person who is produced by that wisdom. And when you look at what simple obedience to the Word of God, the quality of life that is produced in a human being, whatever our diversity, whatever our education or lack of education, whatever our opportunity or lack of opportunity, it works anywhere in the world. The wisdom of God is proved to be wisdom based upon the quality of the person that it produces. And we have the privilege of being able to be a part of that workmanship and God producing that kind of quality in, in our lives. Psalm 112 lists the blessings of the man who fears the Lord. Now, I really like Psalm 112. Of course, I like them all. But my favorite uh, passage of Scripture is the one that I happen to be reading at the moment. And uh, that's just the way the Word of God is. It's like a big treasure chest, isn't it? When I was a boy, <clears throat> there was something that was drummed into uh, my head. And the saying that was drummed into my head every way that it could be was a simple saying. It was said a lot of different ways, but the gist of it was encapsulated in the saying, crime doesn't pay, crime doesn't pay, crime doesn't pay, crime doesn't pay. And it wasn't just me as a as a 
oddity in the city that I was growing up in that was raised with that kind of an understanding. Everybody I knew, that's what was reinforced in their life, this realization or this truth that crime does not pay. And it's a very important message, very glad that that was sown into my heart and into uh, my mind And the, as a boy. And the problem that we face today is that the world has changed in the 50 years since I was a boy. And the world that we live in now and the nation that we live in now, it declares no longer, you know, you hear people saying crime doesn't pay, but you're hearing increasingly that righteousness doesn't pay, that doing what is right doesn't pay. And increasingly, the world does not believe that godliness and righteousness are the way to prosperity. The world believes that crime does pay. And if you force people to really ask them that, do you believe that righteousness pays today in the United States of America? Or do you believe that unrighteousness pays today? I'll tell you, it'd probably be very interesting to read the poll results of something like that. And I think that we can only expect this whole idea of crime does pay and righteousness doesn't pay to increase as uh, the return of the Lord draws near and near, because the Bible says that as the, Lord, the return of the Lord is drawing closer, lawlessness is going to abound. In other words, lawlessness is going to become the norm. People are just going to live their lives as they want, as if laws don't exist, as if laws don't apply to them, whether it's God's laws or whether it's man's laws. It's a funny thing, funny in a sad, very, very sad way. But here we have our government, and our government isn't alone in it. But for the last 50 years, our government has felt very, very free to not only tell its population, but to indoctrinate its population that God's laws don't matter. That what God has to say about abortion doesn't matter. What it has to say about homosexuality, but not just homosexual sin, but heterosexual sin, fornication. None of this matters. God's old-fashioned. He's out of touch. None of this matters. You can be free to disregard all of God's laws. And then one day, 50 years later, you wake up in that same nation and you discover that the population isn't as stupid as you think that they are. And they realize, if you have taught me that God's laws don't matter, then why in the world do man's laws matter? And now you've got lawlessness that's going to fill a nation and going to fill a world, which is exactly what we're dealing with now. And in the midst of this increasing disregard for right and wrong going on all around us in God's law and moving then into man's law, whether it's in business with corruption going on in business or people doing their taxes or employee theft at work uh, or uh, people lying on their job resumes and you don't and then people giving their word and they break their word when it's convenient and you don't and then pretty soon a child of God begins to wonder whether crime doesn't pay, whether living this godly, righteous life really is the way to go, is the way to get ahead, is it really the blessed life. 
And so here in Psalm 112, the psalmist brings out all of the blessings of living a godly and a righteous life in the eyes of the Lord. And they're blessings that go way beyond dollars and cents. We think of blessings almost exclusively in terms of money. Who gets ahead in terms of money? God doesn't uh, judge riches in that way or blessing in that way because it's a very poor uh, standard for for blessing. Some of the most miserable people in the world are fabulously rich, but they've got to live with themselves. And they've got to live with the sin that they've committed because their wealth has allowed them that sin or how they got their, that wealth. Not all rich people are bad people or by any means. But just because a person is rich doesn't mean they're to be envied at all. And so he speaks to us here that the blessed life, the life that God... Uh, uh, that God knows is one of a true blessing that, again, it begins with the fear of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. And so here's this respect and reverence for God once again, and that respect and reverence for God being demonstrated in obedience to his word. And so blessed... Is the man, oh, how happy is the man who recognizes that God's commandments are commandments and they aren't suggestions that we can just obey or disregard. And, and it says that here this blessed man is one who delights greatly in his commandments. He doesn't obey God's commandments grudgingly. He considers it a privilege to be able to obey God's word and enjoy the quality of life that follows. And then the psalmist in verse 2 begins to list the blessings of the righteous. And he says, His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. His descendants, speaking of his descendants being mighty on the earth, the generation of the upright will be blessed. This speaks of the, the godly influence of the righteous man will reach into his descendants. It will influence his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, or at least it has the possibility of doing that. That the man or the woman who obeys God and lives for God, that they're going to produce descendants who have a chance to achieve greatness in this world and greatness as God defines it. You say, what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about being raised as a Christian, being raised around the things of the Lord? It is a big thing. You think about how many children are being raised today that don't have the hope of greatness or the, or, or the potential of greatness in their life because they aren't raised with mentors that love the Lord and influencers like that around their life. See so many of them growing up in gangs and others of them because there is no righteous person like this that believes that righteousness pays. The, the children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren are exposed to every kind of wickedness in their youth and they're being raised by you know, a very, very perverted culture. You think about how many children today in our nation are being raised exposed to the vilest of things and they will yet reach adult life and never hear a single Bible verse in their childhood. Never be to Sunday school one time in their whole childhood. And that group is increasing. 
I was coming out of my house uh, yesterday, and there's a wall between where I live in this parking lot and everything, and there is some lady screaming at her kid. She is dropping every kind of word that you could put ten sailors together, and they couldn't, proverbial sailors, and they could not match what she was throwing down on that kid. And if there wasn't a wall there so I could get over there and try to be some, some help and all, I would have tried to be of some help. I thought, my, what? That kid's not having my childhood. What in the world is that kid being set up for and being what they're being exposed to? And you look at so many kids today, they have hardly any chance at surviving in this world, let alone becoming mighty in it. And, and it's because of the failure to have this kind of an influence in their life. But then you look on the other side of, the, of things and you look at the godly child. A godly child is going to grow up with a healthy respect for authority and for law and order. And they're going to grow up learning not to be rebellious against that. They'll grow up knowing how to speak to adults with respectfully. They'll know how to speak to adults in complete sentences. They'll know how, once they grow up, how to arrive at work at the set time and then to put a full day's work in when they get there. They won't have to worry about contracting a sexually transmitted disease before they even know that that's something to be avoided in life. They don't have to worry about becoming an alcoholic or becoming addicted to drugs, and their minds will not be defiled by all of the filthy language and all of the images that are so popular in today's culture. I watched the Super Bowl, of course, and I turn on the halftime show. Usually they've got people my age or older performing. But it was the same thing at the NBA deal. And I'm going to sound like an old man on this kind of thing, but it's not because I was old. I've always been old. And I'm watching that show, and I said, what? And it's not like I'm, I don't know this stuff is going on. But I said, this is harlotry. What in the world are those people doing up on that stage, thrusting around like that? On who raised these people? And who are their influencers? And why is there no shame related to any of that? And I know I'm born again. I know the Spirit of God has brought another nature into my life. I know you've got to be born again to think about this stuff. But I, you just you look at what it is that people are exposed to, what they listen to. You drive down, the guy's got the windows down, and he's doing his rap thing, and they're just saying all of this vile stuff and all. You're saying, you're listening to that maybe eight hours a day or something like that, and, and you don't realize that's forming you into a certain kind of a person. Not just in terms of your vocabulary, but how you view people and how you view property and how you treat people and how you respect people. You reap what you sow. There's no vi nobody violates that law. Be not deceived. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. 
And if you sow to the wind, you're going to reap to the, the whirlwind related to that. And I think about what a person is spared by being raised with this kind of a person that fears the Lord and obeys the Lord. And they're going to know the difference between right and wrong when they grow up. And they're going to know what the meaning of life is from an early age, that it's to have a personal relationship with God and to live for Him and serve Him all the days of their life. And because they know the meaning of life, they can go into these other environments and not be seduced into all of the nonsense that's a part of the educational system, that we're just animals and you just live for the most pleasure and whatever the whole kind of thing. And you take that kind of a kid that has these kind of influencers in their life, and that kind of kid is going to be way ahead of the curve in life. And as parents, once our children are grown, we can't determine what they'll do with the godly training that we've given to them and the advantages that we've given to them in raising them in the things of the Lord. But we do have a responsibility to raise them that way and to give them that opportunity and the godly character instruction that they need to be successful. And the parent that does that is richer in terms of conscience and in terms of accomplishment than the person who has conquered the whole world and is fabulously wealthy and owns multiple businesses but does not know the Lord and does not invest in their children and allows the culture to raise the children. And so these are things that make a person rich for a person to look back and say, it's not about money, but I can be able to look back and say, yeah, this, you know, maybe righteousness in the age in which I live didn't translate into a lot of money or a lot of popularity. But what it allowed me to do is for the rest of my life to have the inner peace and the joy and the sense of accomplishment that I raised my children for God and in the things of the Lord. And that's a blessing that's bigger than any amount of money that anyone can offer. And then he takes and mentions the second blessing of righteousness, that wealth and riches will be in their house. And in general, the godly life is a life that does produce prosperity. How magically? Yes, you give a dollar and God gives ten. He's compelled to do that. Now, that's just silliness. The seed faith, all of that prosperity, positive confession kind of thing. The reason that the godly life is one that in general produces prosperity is because a person that is a godly person will work hard as unto the Lord and he'll do the best that he can. He'll be conscientious. He'll be well motivated. He'll be honest and he'll come from a home life that is stable and all of that is desired by employers and those kind of workers are always in short supply whatever the economy might be and those things lead to a prosperity that the lazy and the wicked will never know there's a funny thing that what the world what our country is trying to do right now in our government where they're moving from feeling compelled to provide their citizens us as citizens with equality of opportunity, which they should provide the citizens with. I'm all for that 100%, but now moving to the place that they want to guarantee equality of outcome. You can't do that because there's too many variables in prosperity. And God has loaded all of creation. 
He has created it in such a way that prosperity ultimately flows to the righteous and to the hardworking. And if you try to circumvent that flow or move it someplace else and reward other behavior than righteousness and hard work, you're only going to make problems that are even bigger than the problems that we have. That's just the way that God has made the whole creation, the whole universe. And it's true of a child of God. We work hard. We are conscientious. We are righteous or to be righteous in our life and in our work life. And it tends towards prosperity. And one of the reasons it tends towards prosperity is that when we live a righteous life, we're not throwing all of our money away on a bunch of nonsense. I remember when I was <laughs> working as a lineman for the phone company, there was a guy that was uh, on the crew that I worked with pretty regularly, and uh, we both made the same amount of money. We were both same time and title and everything. And, um, and he uh, would take and he'd spend his money on partying and all these different kinds of, of, uh, of things. And he always begging to work Saturdays and overtime and everything. And yet the more he worked, the less money he had. He was always out of money. But he's always out getting drunk and getting in fights and all these kind of things. And, and just loving the life that he had, actually. It was very weird. And uh, <laughs> so at the same time, here I am. Karen and I are married. And, and uh, 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 we're... Uh, buying a home. We had two cars that ran and uh, were paid for. We had two children, and one of them was in a private school. We're tithing to the church and, and all, and, and all, and there's still a little bit of money. Not a lot, but a little bit of money even left over. And it's just because when a righteous person, God shapes our priorities and He makes our life prosperous. And, and our money goes into the right places and doesn't go into the pit that it once went into. He says in verse 3, and his righteousness endures forever. In other words, wealth and riches don't change the righteous man. They won't corrupt him. God can entrust riches and wealth and prosperity to a righteous man because he knows it won't ruin him. Sometimes if you ever see, like read an article or sometimes I think they've even had like a special on TV where they track all of these people that win the lotto. They win $139 million. All of my problems are over. <laughs> and then it's funny. I, I remember watching a thing. I didn't watch the whole deal, but just kind of getting the gist of the whole thing at, toward the, at the end of the show. Every one of them, I think, except maybe one, but I don't think there was one exclusion. Every person, we're not talking about Christians, every one of them cursed the day they won the lottery because they lost everything that was important to them. Marriage, family, kids, who could you trust now, who were true friends, all, and now you have the ability to buy things. You introduce, you make $139 million. You, you are now have the ability to access temptation in sin in a way that maybe a person doesn't have the character that is ready to have access to that kind of thing and say no to it. And it's fascinating. But here's the child of, of God or the righteous man he, the, uh, concerning him that his righteousness endures forever because he has the godly character to handle 
uh, prosperity that God brings in a way that is righteous. It won't affect his righteous life. And then in verse 4, he says, Under the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. And so the fourth blessing of the righteous is that our life is lived in the light rather than in darkness. That's a big, a big deal. Because of God coming into our life, we see life with a clarity of like walking in the light. If you were to have everything be pitch black, let's say walking through a warehouse that you, weren't un, you were unfamiliar with that was like went the length of the property and say go from this end to this end, I mean you'd be going through in the dark. By the time we got shit the other end, we'd have to have the paramedics to take you to the hospital and give you all the stitches and everything because you'd been poked and jabbed and fallen and all of that. And you take somebody who comes in one end, flips on the light, it's lit all the way through. Now they can walk their way through. And that's what God does with us through His Word. That's how, that's the, we know the meaning. We know the purpose of life. When we come to the coffee table in the room or whatever decision that we have in, in life, we know what the right decision is to make there. God's already made the decision for us. So we go through life instead of being wounded and beat up. We go through life in a completely different quality because of the light that God has brought into our lives. The good man deals graciously, verse 5, and he lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. And so the fifth blessing of the righteous is he's not in bondage to selfishness. And then God, as a result, God can use him to do good uh, for others. And so this is one of the great blessings in life as God prospers a person and they can prosper a person an extra dollar. And they have a desire to buy their friend something that you can buy for a dollar. It doesn't have to be a big sum of money. But one of the great blessings of the righteous is that they don't look at everything they have and think of it solely in terms of themselves, but they look then to bless other people with uh, uh, through their life. And when you bless another person in that kind of a way, the feeling that you have when you walk away from that kind of a situation is a feeling that the wicked will never know. Only the righteous know that feeling. What dollar amount do you put on that feeling? And then the sixth blessing he tells us in verse 6 is surely he shall never be shaken. The righteous will be in an everlasting remembrance. And uh, in other words, his life is built on a foundation that can't be shaken. And that is great to know. No matter what storm comes into our life, there's a confidence that we have in the world. You think, you know, uh, the chaos and the craziness of the world that's going on right now, the uncertainty of the world, economic, all different ways that are happening, and the panic that can sometimes grip us even as Christians. If you think we're panicked, you don't know what panic is. If you don't know God and you're in the same world facing the same things, I mean, that's a mess, a bigger mess. And so for us, we have a foundation in our life. We're processing life through the realization that God is is not going to allow the foundation that he's built into my life to be shaken in any kind of uh, meaningful way in, in the storms and the difficulties of, of life. And then in verses 7 and 8, he said, He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. And so the wicked man is always doing what? Looking over his shoulder. 
Every time he sees a cop, he needs a nitroglycerin tablet. Everybody, everybody, every time somebody says, hey, do you remember? Or I saw you, or what, they, they lock up. What do you know about me? That's a miserable, miserable way to live, and so many people live in that, 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 that kind of a way, always looking over their shoulder. That's the thing I could never get. Madoff was back in the papers, uh, news today. He regrets that he pleaded guilty to ripping people off for $17.5 billion because some of it's being repaid or some kind of a thing. But just think about how can you be ripping people off and you've got yachts and you've got homes in five or ten different cities around the world and are filled with museum-class art and all of this, and you know all of it's been gotten by unrighteousness and you know you're going to get caught someday and it's going to be lost. I'd rather have a little folding table and a couple of metal chairs that are actually my own that I can have a cup of tea and a piece of toast in the morning when I'm sitting on them than to have the whole world and wondering when is the bottom going to fall out and, and I get discovered. And so we don't have to worry about that, that kind of a thing. We live with a clear conscience we know we're right with God. We know we're right with our fellow man. And what a blessing that that is. And then he says in verse 9, He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. And that eighth blessing is that he'll leave a good legacy. In other words, his life will have a lasting impact for good and for God in the world long after he goes to heaven. A horn in the ancient world, it speaks of power. And so um, it, it's saying about this man that people will give thanks for how he used his power long after he's gone. Think about how rich is a person that when they die, you say, what does it matter? They won't hear. Yeah, but their descendants will hear, and it'll be for the glory of God. How rich is the person who looks and when they die and they go to heaven because of their treatment of other people and their care for other people, that every time their name is mentioned, the person says, praise the Lord for that man. Praise the Lord for that woman. That's a blessed, that's a blessed life. That's a blessed person. Rather than your name getting mentioned, they spit on the ground and say, don't mention that name again to me. Righteousness does pay when it results in that kind of a legacy. And the, the wicked will never have that kind of legacy. And then finally, in verse 10, the wicked shall see it, the prosperity and the blessings of righteousness, and they'll be grieved. It'll upset them. Not enough to repent. But he will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. And so this ninth blessing is, is of the righteous is the influence of his life will be one that hinders the spread of wickedness. His life drives the wicked crazy, not only because he lives a righteous life, but because they can do nothing to stop the power of influence of that kind of life as much as they hate it and as much as they uh, want to uh, stop it. And, uh, and stop the attention and the praise and the blessing that is poured out toward uh, that kind of, of a person. And so heaven that doesn't measure wealth the way that the world does. And these are the things that make a person truly rich in life. And it all begins with the fear of the Lord 
and that begins with salvation and just living an obedient life unto the Lord. Crime does not pay. It may pay in money for a very short season, but it does not pay in any other way. Righteousness pays, and righteousness is the life of blessing. And we live in a world and we live in a time where we may see, I don't know, for the rest of our lives, an expansion of crime-paying and unrighteousness being rewarded and not being punished And it looks like we're losing out on everything by obeying God and being obedient to his word and all. Don't believe it. Never believe that. Righteousness pays. This is the greatest life that a person can live. Let's stand together and we'll pray.